We value solid Bible teaching from the pastor behind the pulpit, but wouldn't it be nice to sit down with your pastor for some one-on-one conversation? Well, that's what we'll do today, right here on Focal Point. Welcome to Focal Point. I'm Dave Drewy, your host for this special Q&A session of Ask Pastor Mike. You know, everyone loves the comfort of familiar things. I know I do. But when does staying in our comfort zone actually impede progress? Well, today, Pastor Mike Fabares is going to tackle how that can happen when we observe church traditions. Right now, let's join Executive Director Jay Wharton and Pastor Mike from Inside the Pastor's Study for an insightful conversation about being outwardly compliant but inwardly defiant. Jay? Thanks, Dave. And welcome to another edition of Ask Pastor Mike. Just remember, if you'd like to ask a question, you can email us by visiting focalpointradio.org and send your question in for Pastor Mike, and we'll get it on the radio for you. Today, Pastor Mike, we have a listener who asks... Would churches today benefit more from liturgical practices like prayer books, use of an altar, or more traditional forms of worship? Well, you know, sometimes the question is posed in a way that makes it feel like, well, you either have liturgical practices or you don't. And really, we all have some kind of uh, liturgical practice in that there's some kind of form or ceremony. I mean, there's some certain kind of expectation of what you wear to church, no matter what your church is. And what's funny in terms of just thinking through this is once you go like to the mission field and go to different places, whether it's uh, the jungles of some uh, Pacific island or whether it's South America or Africa or wherever it might be, you start to realize how many things you don't think are expected in your worship that you expect in your worship because every culture is so radically different, and they meet with a whole different set of forms in their worship. So I think we need to be careful about you know, what's liturgical and what isn't. But my concern is that the traditional church often has gone way too far with the wrappings of Christianity in that they begin to distract They begin to get people's eyes on a form, and once you go through that form, it makes people think, well, I've I've done church today. Our eyes and our experience and our heart and our feelings all get focused on a particular form of things. If I, you know, did this prayer or I recited that passage or if we stood up and sat down and did these things or lit that candle or whatever, I, you know, I'm just concerned that Jesus spoke to us about a kind of worship that needs to be really focused on the truth behind the images. The Old Testament was filled with ceremonies, and that season, according to the book of Hebrews, is now gone. It's retired. Now we're in a new covenant, new Testament era of worship, and it's much simpler. It's pared down. It's about the truth that is expressed through life, through our love for one another, through our love for God. It doesn't need all the forms, and frankly, as the Bible would seem to put it in the New Testament, you know, it really should avoid a lot of the forms. Obviously, you're talking about when Christ is talking to the woman at the well in John 4, he talks about worshiping in spirit and truth. Unpack that a little bit for us so we understand what he's saying and how that relates to our church services today. Well, remember in John 4, the woman was a Samaritan woman. They weren't allowed to worship in Jerusalem, so they'd built their version of the Jerusalem temple on Mount Gerizim there, which was really, it's, it's interesting when you picture the historical setting of that conversation. It was in the distance, not far from Sychar, where they're having that conversation. And so she says, you know, our fathers say in this mountain, you guys say down there in Jerusalem, which involves all of the ceremonies of Old Covenant worship. 
And Jesus' response is, neither there or in Jerusalem. You know, that this is all going away. The time is coming and now is. We're neither there or in Jerusalem. Are we going to worship? We're going to worship God in spirit and in truth. And those things do not rely upon the forms and the ceremonies of the Old Covenant. And I think that's a great starting point for us, that when churches assemble, that the church is organized by the principles of God's Word, we do the things that the Bible asks us to do. We worship together, uh, we, we express our praise to God corporately, we listen to the teaching of the Word, and we don't worry about all of the forms, certainly of the Old Testament, and then we should be very careful and cautious about adding layers of forms that we come up with and say, well, it's only worship if it's in this way or with this form or with this order of service. Out of the Reformation, for instance, there was a very big movement to take these forms away, uh, the icons of the Church, the statues, and all the stuff that went with it. And so the idea was, we don't need these things, they become a distraction to worship. Now again, if I talk about that and say, well, we don't need any forms, we should eschew those forms and, and ignore them, well, we all have some level of form, even if it's very simple, in a very simple church, there's a certain order of things which is our form and expression of worship. So we shouldn't be too dogmatic, I should say, about, well, you shouldn't have this, you shouldn't have that. We just need to make sure that none of those things become a distraction in our worship. You said every service has a form in some way, or every service is a form in some way. What are some of the forms, the big ones that you see that churches get trapped in? I'm sure it's different for every church, but what have you seen that can be well, distractions? Yeah, one that Jesus pointed out in the Sermon on the Mount was the recitation of prayers. Now, there'd be nothing wrong with reciting a prayer as long as your heart and your mind was engaged in that. But the way it was done, as Jesus points out, was vain repetition, because they were people just mindlessly reciting lines of texts, and they weren't really expressing the communication of their heart. So I would be wary of certain things that would give us a sense that we've actually communicated to God when in fact we haven't. And whether it's a recited prayer or reciting certain things, not that any of it is inherently wrong, it's just they can easily lead us to think we've done something that we haven't. So there's a lot, I think, in, and certainly, and I'm speaking now from my preference, there's a lot of things when I see them in the church, I think so much of it is a distraction. I don't like a lot of clutter in the service. I don't like a lot of clutter in what we're doing, uh, you know, in terms of forms. I want to keep it very simple. Uh, and Jay, you know, because you go to the church that I lead here, I, I don't even like the building to have a lot of ornate things in it. I like it very pared down and very simple. That's the expression of my heart, because I want these things to be thought of and understood, and not just because we saw a certain symbol, or we had a certain kind of glass on, on the windows, or, you know, a certain, you know, the steeple that shoots up into the sky. I, I mean, those things to me, there's nothing wrong with those inherently, but to me, I really want the truth of what we're doing in the service to be thought of, to be experienced with our own minds, and not to be reliant on, we sang the song, we recited this prayer, we had this encounter with a certain kind of building. Uh, that, that's not the important part. Is there something a worshiper can do to prepare themselves so that they're not just going through the motions, but they're actually 
spiritually engaged in a worship service. Yeah, well, their mind needs to be prepared to have their mind engaged. So, you know, prayer is a great thing in the morning before we go off to the church service to be praying to God, God, I need my mind engaged. And there's simple things that we can do, like if we know the text that's being preached on, we can read that text, we can pray through that text, we can ask God to teach us through the preacher this morning about that text. We need to have that sense of, okay, I'm going to church, my mind needs to engage. And when we sing those songs, they cannot just be uh, the reciting of words. We don't even want the music to become the focus. We don't want our minds to be kind of turned off because our emotions are so uh, you know, involved in the, the quality of the music or the style of the music. We need to be focused on what we're doing. We're expressing ourselves with our minds engaged in truth. And then we respond to the Word of God as it's taught to us, and we engage with one another in church. If you think about a church service, that's what we're doing. We're expressing to God, we're hearing from God, we're engaging with one another. So those are the things that need to be focused on. You can prepare your minds by praying about that every time you go to a church service and make sure your heart and your mind are prepared to engage when you get there. Well, thank you, Pastor Mike. We're going to keep this conversation going by listening to a message that you did called Traditions and Authentic Rules. Luke 6, we see Jesus dealing with the religious people who had expectations and say, if you want to please God, you better do this. And Jesus, of course, knows exactly what it takes to please the Father, and he's not dissuaded, but it certainly is a lesson for us so that we don't get kind of swept into thinking like a lot of people do in not clearly understanding what it is to live for Christ. So I want to learn from these two scenes. In verses 1 through 5, if you've opened to it, you can glance through that. There's one scene about Jesus on the Sabbath. And then in the second scene, verses 6 through 11, there's another scene where he's you know, running into problems with the opinions of the day regarding the Sabbath. Verse 1, on a Sabbath, Jesus happened to be going through the grain fields. And while he was, his disciples had plucked some and ate some of the heads of grain, and they would rub them together in their hands, which I suppose, as I've learned, is the way you do that. Take the husk off of them, and they'd pop them in their mouths, and they were eating them. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing, now this would be the phrase to underline, what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Clearly, they look at what Christ and his disciples are doing and say, You're breaking God's law. Right? And Jesus answers them with a bit of a curious you know, response. I wouldn't expect this, but look what he does. Quoting now from 1 Samuel 1, he, he asks them a rhetorical question, because of course they're Pharisees, they've read the whole Old Testament, but he says, hey, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, which you may be familiar with as the, the show bread, it's also called. But they would take that bread, and as it says, it's only lawful for the priests to eat. Well, he comes in when it's not yet eaten, so I assume it's Saturday or it's early in the week, and um, he says, do you have any bread? They said, well, we got this, and they gave it to him, and he ate it, and he gave it to his posse. Verse 5, and he said to them, Jesus does, the Son of Man, speaking of himself, is the Lord of the Sabbath. More on that in a minute. On another Sabbath, he entered the synagogue, and he was teaching. A man comes up whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him, that is Christ, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts. And he said to the man with a withered hand, come and stand here. And he rose and stood there. And Jesus said to him, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around at all of them, he said to him, stretch out your hand. 
And he did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Okay, two scenes, two Sabbath situations. The one, he's walking through the grain fields, and he is eating with his disciples the heads of grain by rubbing the husks off in their, their hands and eating them. They said, as we've read, verse number one, as they do this, they describe how it's done. Verse two, you're doing something that's not lawful. Jot these references down, if you would, as I read them for you. Let's start in Exodus 16.23. This is the scene when they're out in the wilderness. We've already gotten the command to rest on the seventh day, Saturday. And then some of the details of how to deal with things like, uh, I don't know, cooking. Now, in this time, they were being fed by God through the manna outside there of the camp, and they had to go and collect it and bring it in and cook it every day, bake it, boil it, whatever. They did, did to it. And in this text, it says, okay, you're on Friday now. And tomorrow, I'm quoting now, Exodus 16, 23, is the solemn rest, right? And he recites what that means, a holy Sabbath, solemn rest. To the Lord, so bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over, lay it aside to be kept until morning. And the next verse says, and that's what you'll eat tomorrow. Now think this through. Said no work on the seventh day. Saturday don't work. So okay, we're going to shut down, whether it's harvest time or not, not going to work. We're not gathering, going to the store to get it, and we're not bringing it back and cooking it. Now, if you want a modern equivalent to what Jesus is doing in verse number one, going through the grain fields as he's walking through there, plucking them and eating some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands, that's like you stopping by the little stand on, on the road by your house and buying a Snicker bar, right? I mean, there's really nothing to this, but there's some food, pop it in your mouth. Oh yeah, take the wrapper off. Now, I don't even think you have to look at the spirit of the law, which clearly is not you know, in the direction of eating something that requires the wrapper taking off, but certainly not even the letter of the law. That's not what the law says. The law says you can't go out, get your stuff, cook it up, and serve it because the cook gets the day off. This has nothing to do with the cook getting the day off. These are guys walking through the field, which they have the right to do according to Deuteronomy on the edge of the field. They can't put a sickle to the, to the grain, but they can go and pick what they want and eat it, and that's exactly what they're doing. Here's my contention, though not every commentator will tell you this. Jesus is not violating the Sabbath according to the law. And you're going to ask, well, wait a minute. Look what he says. His response to them is David breaking the law. And you're right. Verse 3. Follow me now. And Jesus answered them. He says, oh, you think I'm doing something unlawful on the Sabbath? Let me talk to you about David. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, and he and those who were with him, and how he entered the house of God, took and ate the bread of the presence, the showbread? It's not lawful for any to eat but the priests, and he gave it to those who were with him. The priest could eat it. David couldn't eat it. Now, why would he bring that up? Because you're telling me he's not breaking the law, and here he's saying David is breaking the law. Let me make this super clear. The correspondence between the story of David and what Jesus is doing was made by Jesus not because there's a correspondence to the infraction of the law. Okay? He's enlisting it because what the rabbis of the first century taught about what David did when he got into the, the temple there in Nob, the tabernacle, and ate the showbread. The rabbis, if you read what they wrote, they believe David was exempt. He was exempt. He did break the law. There's no way around that. But he is not guilty because he is David. The correspondence that's being made is what he's wanting them to do with their knowledge of Christ. In other words, you're giving David a pass because he's a man after God's own heart and the greatest king of Old Testament Israel. I am the son of man. In the words of Colossians, Colossians, all things were made by him and for him. Question, 
Does Jesus really need to get circumcised on the, on the eighth day? Does he really need to bring sacrifices? Does he really need to submit to the festivals? Does he really need to keep the Sabbath? No, why? Because if he is the son of man, the ancient of days has put all dominion on, then all those things are really symbolic of him. All of those things should serve him. When it comes down to it, Jesus is above this ceremonial law because he's the whole purpose of the ceremonial law. And I would submit to you, he wasn't breaking the Sabbath rules. What he was breaking, and here's my pastoral point, is what the Pharisees expected of him. The Pharisees, in their mind, thought that he was displeasing the Father because they had expectations, and all you got to do is hear any sermon on this or read any book or any commentary, and they immediately start quoting what all the Pharisees required of people when it came to the Sabbath day. The Bible, oh, it has regulations about the Sabbath, and they don't take long for us to read them and see you can't do this, you can't do that on the Sabbath. It's a day of ceasing from work, and God has to go and say, listen, listen, you can't work the servants, you can't even work your animals. Everybody rests, including the cook. We remember the covenant between God and the people of Israel. Stop working. But they had added to it. And then they said, if you do what we think is wrong on the Sabbath, you know what? We don't think you're godly. You're doing what is unlawful. Now the question is, was it? No. It was their laws. It was their traditions that they made out to be laws. We get back to the second scene here in Luke 6. It's on another Sabbath. Enters the synagogue. He's teaching. Man with a withered hand. Right hand comes in. Scribes and Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse him. Now tell me this. Did the Pharisees and scribes want him to heal the man on the Sabbath? Yes or no? Yes. Why? So they could bust him. Now let's just think about this. You got Sabbath keepers in their heart wanting this man to break the Sabbath. Do you see the problem here, the hypocrisy of this? So he says to the man, verse number eight, with a withered hand, hey, you come stand here. You can see the indignant frustration of Christ. And he rose and he stood there and he said, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? Now that's what he wanted to do to the man with a withered hand. Not only prove his credentials as he's doing throughout the synagogues in Galilee, but he wants to do good to this man. He says now in the, the second couplet, he says, is it lawful to save life or destroy it? Because in reality, what's happening is they are there on the Sabbath plotting to destroy Christ. Look at him expose their motive. Here's what he says. You're here on the Sabbath, not only wanting me to break the Sabbath, but look at your own heart. You come here saying you're keeping the law of God, but in your heart, you've come here to destroy a person. I'm trying to speak a word and heal the person, and you're trying to condemn me for that. After looking around at all them, verse 10, he said to him, stretch out your hand, and he did so, and his hand was restored. And they were filled with fury, exactly as they planned to be. And they discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. The hypocrisy is they're there checking a box that they're Sabbath keepers doing what God wants them to do, when in their heart they're doing something terrible. They're plotting to kill a man who's simply speaking a word. And if you're talking about regulations from the law of Moses about healing, we have none. Why? Because it's a miracle, because people don't do this. Is it much work anyway for Christ to speak a word and heal the man and say, stretch out your hand? What kind of work is that? Here's what's happening. You've got men who on the outside look like they're keeping the laws of God. And in fact, I suppose on the outside they were, but on the inside they weren't. And when it comes to our situation as New Testament believers, put it this way, we need to keep the moral rules inside and out. That's the authenticity that keeps us from hypocrisy. Because we can be something on the outside and something else on the inside. That's really happening, is it not, as the Pharisees are obeying God on the outside, but they're disobeying God on the inside? I mean, they are there to kill a man, and they want him to break the Sabbath so that they can accuse him. Mark chapter 7. With this, we'll wrap it up. Mark 7. Pick it up now in verse 8. Not only are they taking the, 
the teachings and commands of people and putting it on par with the teachings and doctrines of God. It's worse than that. They're raising those as a cover for evil behavior. Look at how he puts it beginning in verse 8. When it comes to these two things, it's not only that you equate them and keep them equal, it's that you're actually leaving the commandment of God, Mark 7, verse 8, and holding to the tradition of men. And he said this, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, for instance, honor your father and mother. Whoever reviles his father and mother, surely put to death. Clearly those commands were having you be favorable and kind to your parents. That's the point of the command, and that's what they tell you to do. But you say, listen, I got a tradition here and another law, and what we'll do is we'll say if a man has property or money and he can help his father and mother, but he says to them, listen, I can't do it because whatever would have been gained, if I gave you that, I've marked it Corbin, which is a word, as Mark explains, which, which means given to God. I've set the money aside for God. Then you no longer permit the man to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you handed down, and many such things you do. You do something that gives an appearance of godliness, but in many ways you're doing that while your heart's moving in the opposite direction. And when it comes to this, the Bible says, honor your parents, and look at this one practice where you'd say, well, I really don't want to honor my parents, and because I don't want to honor my parents, I've come up with a way to justify not honoring my parents by putting some kind of thing here that looks very religious, and that is, I've set the money aside for the Lord, I can't give it to you. You're really breaking the law while you're giving the appearance that you're keeping the law. That's kind of hypocrisy God has just had enough of. As a matter of fact, the Sermon on the Mount that's recorded there in Matthew chapter 5 is filled with those things. He says, you may be checking the box and you may never have murdered anybody. You have no rap sheet. And yet in your heart, you harbor bitterness toward them. When you hate them and call them names, the Bible says, really, you're moving in this direction toward your neighbor when the Bible says, love your neighbor and should be moving in this direction. When it comes to adultery, hey, fantastic, faithful to your wife, you haven't committed adultery, that's supposed to lead you to fidelity and, and there's oneness in your marriage, but instead, you're moving in your heart in the opposite direction with a lust-filled heart. You're keeping the law on the outside, but on the inside, your heart's running the other direction. Oaths, right? Bible says that the oaths, yeah, to make an oath, make a commitment, do all that. Here, but here's the thing, you're using that to say, it only is applicable and my words are only binding when I'm making an oath, and I can then do the opposite. I can be untrustworthy, and I can do something that really isn't real, it's not true, it's deceptive, because I didn't make an oath. God lists all those kinds of things and says, look at what you're doing. You're keeping the law on the outside, or at least you think you are, and maybe someone sees that you are, but on the inside, your heart's running the other direction. Let that be the pattern for what you do all week. If you're going to tell the truth, I'm telling the truth inside and out. If you're going to be faithful to your spouse, faithful to your spouse inside and out. If you're going to deal with the issues at work and deal with the integrity that the Bible asks for, inside and out. Don't let your heart be moving in the opposite direction. You make sure this is all something that's authentic, non-hypocritical. Another timely message from Pastor Mike Fabares here on Focal Point. Today's message is from a study about discernment called Traditions and Authentic Rules. And you can hear the complete study when you go to focalpointradio.org. Our passion here at Focal Point is to deliver accurate and relevant Bible teaching to the widest possible audience. But we can't do it alone. It's real people like you coming together with a real regard for God's Word who help us take this program nationwide. If you've never taken the time to show your support, today's a great day to get in touch and become a Focal Point partner. We're counting on folks like you who share our passion for accurate verse-by-verse -verse study to help support this ministry with a tangible gift. And when you commit to give a set gift every month, we can plan our expansion with the strong backing of purposeful stewardship. 
Sign up to become a Focal Point Partner today or give a one-time gift by calling 888-320-5885. To show our gratitude for your gift today, we'll send you the book, A Cloud by Day, A Fire by Night, by the late pastor and theologian A.W. Tozer. If you've ever wondered what God's will is for you, then you will find this book refreshingly helpful. It's yours when you send a gift of support, large or small. So call 888-320-5885. Online, go to focalpointradio.org. If you prefer sending your donation by mail, write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. Through your generosity, we can deliver Pastor Mike's compelling expositional teaching by internet, podcast, app, and hundreds of radio stations nationwide. Thank you for investing so others are served. Go to focalpointradio.org. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, wishing you a great weekend ahead. We'll meet you back here for more Bible teaching with Pastor Mike Fabares next time on Focal Point. program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.